This is How to Read. I'm Mila. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking to Martin Puckner, an expert in world literature and theater. We tend to think of literature as something that's written down. But Martin Puckner is interested in cases where the spoken word precedes, coexists with, or even comes after the written word. From ancient Greece to medieval Mali to Stalinist Russia, he explores why certain literary artists have preferred speech to writing by understanding why and when these artists relied on speech. Martin argues that we can better appreciate their written works too. Martin Puckner, welcome. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about literature from speech to writing and back again. Um, so can we start with the first phase of that, which is from speech into writing? And, you know, when we think of literature, I think we, we just assume that it is written. That's like a basic condition, right? But actually, I, I see that you've been interested in cases where there's a spoken... Um, spoken word that precedes the writing. Right. So one thing I've been focusing on are these charismatic teachers, figures like the Buddha, Socrates, Confucius, and Jesus. What's interesting to me about them is that they lived in some of the most literate cultures of their day. So cultures in which people could both read and write. Could read and write, and yet these figures chose not to write. So could we start with Socrates? Um, During his lifetime, he was a teacher. um, And if he wasn't writing, how is he teaching? So Socrates is the most interesting, perhaps, of of these four non-writing teachers because he gave the most explicit account of his choice not to write, and he presented it very much as a choice. He famously argued that writing was bad in various ways. It was bad for memory. If you trust this external storage device, you no longer Mm -hmm. have to remember something. So meaning that if you write it down, then it's like out of your brain and on a page instead. That's right, and you no longer worry about it. You no longer keep it in your mind. Uh The other worry he had was that you can't ask a text a follow-up question and again um, that that violated his own principle which was life interactive dialogue right this is what that was how he taught his own students this is how he taught his own students this Uh is also how the buddha and confucius interacted with their students i kind of imagine each of them like sitting in a garden with people like arranged in that's, front of them. That's right. And this is how they're all always represented, these yeah. teachers surrounded by their students and followers. So when Socrates died, how did his students a- approach the question of his legacy and how to transmit those teachings after his death? Right. That becomes the crucial problem. The teacher dies. So the question is, do these students betray their teacher when they turn to writing? You could say, yes, to some extent, they betray them. But more important, they channel this resistance back into literature. And the, the result is a very different... The resistance to writing. The resistance to writing. and They so channel back into a written text. They channel back into a written text. And the result 
is a very different kind of text from other texts from the ancient world. These are shorter texts. There are texts premised on dialogues, on anecdotes, on precisely the kind of Q&A that, 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 that characterized these teachers' interactions with their students. So yeah. it was, wasn't just a, a betrayal. It, it led to a new type of literature. Mm. So, I mean, when you say dialogues, like I'm imagining it sort of like a play script where you have like the name of the speaker and then what they say and then the next speaker. Is that right? And that, that's right. And this is very much how Plato, Socrates' students, wrote. He invented, in some sense, the the philosophical dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's a very dramatic, there's a setting, there are speakers, it's situated. And that situatedness seems like it interacts with, with writing in an interesting way, because if what you were saying about Socrates was that he really valued the sort of face-to-face -face teaching, once that initial situation no longer applies, how do those writings then communicate? Yeah, well, they, they are writings, but I would say they're writings of a somewhat different nature. They're writings of a, of a sort that you could actually stage them, you know, on a stage, and or you could use them as models for dialogues and exchanges that might result from these um, texts. Mm -hmm. So there, there are ways to imagine that these texts would be revived that they would be turned back into speech mm. and and engender new live dialogues so even at the point where uh the speech gets translated into writing there's an idea of it might get translated back again exactly mm. um is there a specific uh dialogue that really addresses those questions for me, the Phaedo is the most dramatic of Plato's dialogues. Uh, it's set in prison. Socrates has been sentenced to death. We know that he will die soon. And yet he insists on philosophizing. His friends and students have come and they talk about the immortality of the soul. And that at some point, the prison guard comes in and he brings the poison Socrates takes it and drinks it, and he still talks, but then the poison slowly affects his legs, and he has to sit down, and he still talks, but then the poison starts to affect his torso, and he has to lie down, and at some point, he can't talk anymore, and he's still, and then his students know that he is dead. So he's philosophizing in speech until the very end. Yes. So maybe the tea is now ready. Let's have a little. Oh, I think that's okay. Can I give you this one? Thank you. So in those examples, writing sort of replaced speech, although in ways where it sort of left open the possibility of returning to speech or at least trying to capture something of it in writing. But I understand that in some cases, spoken literature uh, and writing coexist for hundreds of years. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, so for me, the most interesting example is the epic of Sunjata, an epic that, like many epic poems, commemorates the founding of an empire, in this case, an empire that existed in the late Middle Ages in Western Africa, what's today Mali. So. 
since it's called an epic, I imagine that it has a long and complex story, but can you give just a thumbnail sketch of what it's about? Yeah, so it is uh, It is about the founding of, of, of an empire uh, by the founding king Sunjata. The first part is about the birth of Sunjata. There's an attempt made on, on his life and his mother, Sanjata's mother, realizes that she has to take him into exile. And it's only later that, that he will be able to return and win back the land that is rightfully his. Um, but this epic, the epic of Sanjata, was transmitted in some way orally for hundreds of years. And it was then only in the in the late 19th and the early 20th century that that parts of that epic were turned on, into writing and that there is a huge struggle of how to do that there was an attempt to do it as a as a play then as a novel and only really in the second half of the 20th century were better models developed that turned it into a kind of oral epic literature that that's perhaps closer to our modern understanding of homer so w once it started to make its way into writing, the people doing that were actually dealing with the same problems as those people turning Socrates' teachings into writing in, in trying to find kind of new genres um, that they had to kind of translate them into. Right. So once you turn something into writing, right, you have to think about what, what's the best genre. The, the, the version I used that I think is the best version wasn't written down until uh, the late 90s of the 20th century, first recorded by tape recorder and then transcribed and then turned into a written form that captures some of the responses by the audience and captures something of the oral character mm -hmm. uh, of these griots. So who were the griots? So the griots are the professional storytellers, and they don't so much sing, they really recite these poems or these epic stories, and they do that professionally. And, they're and has this been a tradition that's lasted for the whole of the time the epic of Sanjata has? Exactly. They are the professionals charged with the memorizing and recitation of the epic of Sunjata and many other texts. So by now, this epic has been written down. Does the oral tradition still persist? It, it does. And it's been changed by another technology, namely radio and cassette tapes. So this is how these griots now often operate. And it's interesting because it means, of course, that they can influence and compete with each other across the entire region, which wasn't quite as possible before. Before it would really just be local community. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So many of these spards have, of course, discovered this, these oral technologies, radio and, and cassette tapes, and you'll find in market stalls across the region, cassette tapes of different griots and their version of this. Even today. Even today, mm -hmm. yeah. Now coming again, like closer to the present, um, it's not always the case that um, writing actually comes after speech. And I saw that um, you discussed the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova. Is that how you pronounce mm -hmm. it? Akhmatova, yeah. Um, where it actually happens in reverse. Right. So Akhmatova, uh, living in Saint Petersburg, composes 
her poem Requiem in the 1930s under Stalin and really tries to capture what it is like to live in this extreme situation. So, I mean, when I think of the Stalinist regime, um, I think of sort of censorship and of um, writers being sort of arrested and sent to prison camps. Is that what she was facing? Right. So Akhmatova knew that she couldn't have this poem printed and published. And why not that poem? What was it about that poem? Because it was about the gulag. It was about uh, women standing outside the line of the prison trying to learn about what had happened to their loved ones. But she was, not only could she not have this printed and published, she she was even afraid to have it lying around her apartment, which is why she... Just handwritten. uh, Just handwritten, which is why she, after she had composed the poem over a period of time, she learned it by heart. She burned the paper on which she had written it. And then she taught it to a group of female friends so that they would remember it and the poem might survive her own death. I mean, and I'm I'm thinking about that again in relation to some of these questions with those first teachers. But um, so she memorized the poem herself, having written it. Um, so, um, but then she also wanted to have it existing in minds other than her own, right? Like that's the sort of almost again the Socrates thing of like right. you know the teacher and the students being in the same room as each other or the same garden as each other. Um, It's it's almost a repetition of the same moment, although there's one crucial difference. Ahmatova was not an oral poet. She was someone who composed on paper and, more importantly, revised on paper. And there were apparently moments when she would revise something and then her friends would have to re-remember it. So she was basically using... So a, she would go back to them and be like, oh, that thing that I made you memorize, now it's this instead. Exactly. So she was using them not so much as an oral poet would, but as the paper on which she was. She kept making corrections. Wow. Uh, so so you, you see that oral literature by someone who is not an oral poet is in a sense something different from these earlier moments. Mm. And and uh, then it's a sort of mirror image of those other cases we've been discussing where turning speech into writing created these kind of new difficulties. Here, the difficulty is actually she's trying to compose in a way that um, that works well for writing and doesn't work well for speech. And so it's so much more difficult and she's having to really, you know, force her friends to to um to work in a way that that is actually doesn't work well for speech that's right yeah very nicely put yeah Mm. yeah yeah. um i mean i think this is such a rich topic and one of the things that it really brings out to me is that we do a disservice to these works that we most likely today encounter in written form i mean unless we're living in mali but we are not um but we do a disservice to them when we just think of them as being writing and only ever having been writing. I think that's right. I mean, all three of these episodes we've been talking about, Socrates and the other non-writing charismatic teachers, the Epic of Sunjata and Ahmadova, uh, really show how much writing and oral storytelling are entangled. You know, your podcast is called How to Read, and I think there, there are some lessons to be drawn here on how to read in ways that is attentive 
to, to the entanglement of speech and writing. Well, Martin Pogner, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Martin explaining what Confucius's bamboo mat can tell us about his teachings. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was recorded by Jess Engerbretson and was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscom. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.